Well, what do you think of when you imagine, when you think about going into the presence of God? What, what do you sing? What do you think you'll see? You know, when I try to imagine that, I, I try to use Scripture to help give some truth to what I'm imagining. And, and I think about people who found themselves in the presence of God. I think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1. And boy, as they describe that moment, it is, it is beauty, it is awe, it is power, it's, it's lightning, it, it's, it's angels flying, it's smoke. I mean, it's these incredible scenes that are described. As a matter of fact, in both of those passages, when it comes to the end, Isaiah and Ezekiel individually, separately, have basically what looks like a breakdown being in, experiencing the presence of God, it was almost like it was more than they could physically and emotionally process. I think it's just as interesting to run over into the New Testament and see in Revelation 1, John having the same experience. And, and yet what, what stands out to me about John is, man, John knew Jesus as a friend. John walked with Jesus on the earth for, for three years, and yet when John got a glimpse of Jesus in heaven on his throne in his glorified form, man, he fell out. He, he just about passed out. And, and so that's what we see happening when people are experiencing, when, when people are seeing the very presence of God. Now, if you would have asked the Old Testament mind, and we're in the Psalms right now, so we're kind of thinking a lot about the Old Testament mind, how that, how that person would have thought. If you would have said, what do you imagine? What do you think about when you think about the presence of God? They might not, their mind might not have tarried away into, into heaven or, or some grand scene. They probably thought about something more right here, right now. And what probably would have come to their mind would have been something like the Ark of the Covenant. That is what for them represented the presence of God. This was built during the, the days of Moses. This was put together. If you open the scriptures, you see it was, it was uh, it, the instructions for what it was to look like and how it was to be built were very, very specific. And, and it said that in the Holy of Holies, which is where it resided, it was in a tent and the tent moved, but then they'd sent the tent back up and they'd establish that Holy of Holies. The ark would go in there, but the ark was covered. M most never saw it. And, and, and so they thought of this thing back there behind that tent, that Holy of Holies. And it, this whole thing for them was a, a tad mysterious, a tad frightening as a matter of fact, nobody ever actually went in and saw this. Only one person in the entire nation would go into the Holy of Holies, and he went one time a year. And do you know that when he went in, they tied a rope around him in case he died? I mean, you have to think through that because nobody's going in to get him if he dies in there. And so they tied a rope around him. And so that's kind of what they would have thought of when they thought about God being amongst us, God in our midst, the presence of God. And it was a frightening thing. It was a scary thing, which I find a little bit interesting because right in the middle of the Old Testament, we have the Psalms. And I think as you study the Psalms, you, you see an invitation to come in, to enjoy, to experience the presence of God. 
As a matter of fact, there's a number of psalms, we're looking at one of them today, Psalm 15, that give specific instruction. I mean, the purpose is for you and I to land in the presence of God, for you and I to enjoy that. And so these psalms, Psalm 15, one of them, gives you and I, okay, here, here's how I do this, and I guess we need to finish the sentence this way. Here's how I go in, and it be safe, and it be okay. And Psalm 15 gives us that instruction. Now, before I read Psalm 15, I want to read first 2 Samuel 6. Because Psalm 15 is one of those psalms that has a historical context. As David is, is thinking about going into the Ark of the Covenant, as he's inviting you and me to go into the Ark of the Covenant, to go into that place of the, of the presence of God, he's got a context for that. There's an experience that he had. And as we read Psalm 15, you need to read that knowing the historical event that he'd been through. So let's start in 2 Samuel. If you're already in the Psalms, because that's, that's where we are, just go back to the left. You'll go through Job. That's a big book. Chronicles, Kings. After you get, go through Kings, you'll be in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let me begin reading in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalei, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. That's a reference to, he, he's, he's right here, his presence is above that, that, those cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill, was, was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahiho, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahiho went before the ark. I'm not sure if that's how you say that, but if you just say it fast and with a lot of confidence, everybody believes you know exactly what you're saying. Verse 5, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the thre uh, threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand. He, he just reached out because the, the, the ox stumbled. And, and when the ox stumbled, the cart kind of tilted, maybe you know, hit a hole or something. And the ark started to, you know, it did this. Well, you don't want this in the mud, Right. You don't want this falling over in the dirt. So Uzzah does what I think would be very natural for any of us. Man, he just reaches out his hand just to stabilize it, just for a moment. I don't want it to fall over. He reaches out and he touches it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was, well, I guess I understand this. David was angry. David was angry because the Lord had, had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez. Perez is a Hebrew word. It just means outbreak. It is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how, how, how am I going to get the ark? How am I going to move this thing to where I live? This isn't safe. Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, Hey, the Lord is blessing the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of the covenant is there. I love this next line. So David says, Okay, we're going to go get it. 
Okay. Yeah, that's great that Obed-Edom's getting blessed, but that's not why we're... Uh, no, I need to be getting blessed. Let's go get that thing, whatever it costs. So David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom to, the, to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore, and that's the operative word there, folks, they carried. See, before they put it on a cart, now they're carrying it. They carried the ark of the Lord, had gone six steps... Every six steps they sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Now that's a rich passage. Man, there, there's, there's a lot there. We, we could just do a timeout and say, okay, we're going to preach on 2 Samuel today. But we're not because it says in the bulletin that I have to do Psalm 15. But why we cannot spend a lot of time here, would you let me make three quick observations before we leave? This is the story behind Psalm 15. I think we can stop right here, but just three quick observations. Number one, okay, folks, good intentions and zealousness don't make it right. David was zealous about what he was doing. He was passionate about what he was doing. And he had good reasons for what he was doing. But he did all that in direct disobedience to the instructions God had given God had given instructions on how the tent was to be packed up, how it was to be stored, who, not not just how, but who was to carry each part of the tent. And then along with those instructions, how the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried, how it was to be moved, very specific instructions. And David ignored all that. You know, folks, here, I guess here's the way to say it. Sincerity doesn't make it okay. I think that is a profound observation for an American. Because in our culture, sincerity counts for everything. Sincerity trumps everything. It doesn't matter if what you believe is not true if you sincerely believe it. It doesn't matter if what you're doing is wrong as, as long as there's sincerity in your heart. Well, folks, like the old saying goes, you can be sincerely wrong. The sincereness, your heart, doesn't make it okay. Doesn't make it right. Boy, I'm going to start preaching on this. Let's just move on. Second observation. Second observation we're going to make out of this passage is very simply this. This is a hard one and a harsh one. Folks, others at times pay the consequences for our sin. This was David's sin. This was, this was David not doing what he was supposed to do. David set this up so that somebody got hurt. You know, I think that's an important point for us because, you know, especially in our individualism, our right to privacy, a lot of times I think, you know, I may be doing wrong, but as, you, know, you know, that's just me. I'm, I'm not hurting anybody but me. Nobody's affected by this but me. Folks, you don't get to choose when your sin bears fruit. This idea that I'm in control of my sin, I'm in control of how that, to use a phrase, breaks out. No, you're not. No, I'm not. We're not in control at all of when our sin breaks out. We're not in control of who gets touched by that. I've always felt like, as a dad, that's a profound word for parents. You know, others in my home can end up paying the cost of my negligence and my my disobedience. Third observation to make real quickly here, folks, is while the presence of God in this story was a terrifying place, was a, not a safe place, folks, it, it is a place of blessing. We, we want to know 
the presence of God. We want to experience the presence of God. And it can be that place of blessing with right instruction. Okay, now the story has now set up for us Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is going to give us that right instruction. Folks, we want the presence of God should be the greatest desire of your life. There should be nothing you want more in all of life on any one day or in your life as a whole than to know and experience the presence of God both now and in eternity. And that very same place should be the greatest fear of your life. We need to do both of those at the exact same time. Psalm 15 is going to show us how. So let's turn to the Psalms. That's what we're studying. That's where we are. Okay, now the sermon starts. Psalm 15, verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, you remember what I just said. The Ark of the Covenant traveled around in the tent of meeting. Because you remember, for the first 40 years of the Ark of the Covenant, they were wandering in the desert. In the desert, And even when they went into Israel, it stayed more permanent places, but it was still in a tent. And so when he says, who shall sojourn in the tent, he's thinking of the common experience of the Israelite. They know the tent of meeting is there for 500 years from the time of Moses all the way to David's son Solomon. The Ark of the Covenant was in a tent. And so he asks the question, hey, who can go in there? Who, who can enjoy and experience the presence of God? And then with the next line, I think what he's doing is he's dreaming. Because we know that, that man, David wants to build that temple, doesn't he? And, of course, God says, no, you're not going to build it. Your son's going to build it, Solomon. But David dreamed of that day that there would be this grand structure, this grand temple that the Ark of the Covenant would reside in. And David had already had a spot for it, Mount Moriah. It's a hill in Jerusalem. So in these lines, he's kind of speaking both backwards and forwards. Whether you read this before the temple or after the temple, who can go into the tent, who can go onto that hill, who can go where the Ark of the Covenant is? That's the question. Now let's see the answer. Verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and who does no evil to his neighbor, who take, nor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does, listen to this promise, folks. If we build this life, here's the promise that comes with it. He who does these things shall never be moved. Your translation may say, he will never be shaken. Do you want a life that stands? You want a life that can't be knocked down, that can't be shaken? You build it this way. Now, put Psalm 15 together with 2 Samuel. Here's David. He's gone out into the countryside. He's gone out into the nation. He's got the ark. He's moved it into Jerusalem. Okay, He's moved it into the place that is going to become the capital of the nation, the, the city of the kings. And, and, and there it is. Boy, whew. It was hard. It took some time, but I've got it here. There it is. It's the beauty of God, the power of God, the presence of God. Okay, who's going in there? I'm not going in. Do you see what happened to Uzzah? Yeah, see, now, okay, it's here, but now what? Who, who can do anything with that? Who can go in there and experience it? And that's what he starts to answer in Psalm 15. Now, Psalm 15 gives us 11 phrases, 11 ideas about who can go in safely and enjoy the presence of God. Now, here's what we don't need to do. Don't take those 11 things and treat them like a checklist. 
Write out the 11 things. Okay, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. I've done. Oh, need to work on that one this week. Okay, done. And, and there's 11 things. This is not an exhaustive list. What these 11 things are is illustrations of the kind of person that can go in. Of course, the Bible fills in a lot more detail about different things that need to be happening or not happening in our lives for us to safely go into the presence of God. So treating these 11 things like illustrations, I've broken these 11 things. This is what I've done. This, the scripture didn't do this just to help understand it. I've broken these 11 things up into three areas. Three things that we need to be doing so we can safely go in and enjoy the presence of God and the blessing that comes with that. Number one, we need to be right with God. We need to be right with God. The, the passage says there in verse 2, we need to be upright. We need to be without blemish. We need to be blameless. Now, when an Old Testament person heard that word, upright, blameless, without blemish, when they heard that word, you know what they thought of? The sacrifices. You see, they were, they were going, to, going into God's presence, going to the temple. You took an offering. You took a sacrifice. And they would go out to their herd, and they would pick the best ram. They would pick the best one they had because that was their mentality about giving. You don't give to God at the end of the month when you find out, you know, that you've taken care of everything else. Because that says, God, you come last. I'm going to make sure I can cover everything else in my life by my power. And then if there's something left. And that's easy to do that. It's easy to give to God last. It's easy to give to God what we don't want or don't need anyway. But the Old Testament mind was, no, you gave to God first and you gave to God your very best. So they went out and they picked that ram because a herd represented money. All the time in Old Testament, you see people being described by how many flocks of this and that. It was describing their wealth. And so they went out and they picked the best ram and picked out. He would then, he would then peel back its lips and look in its mouth, check out its ears, Look in its eyes, kind of go over the body, make sure there was no, no injury, no blemish. And once he was pretty sure, okay, I've got the best of my flock, he was now ready to give this as an offering to the Lord. He'd carry that to the priest. The priest would do the same thing. Look it over, make sure it's, there's no blemish, that it's blameless, that, it, that it's a good ram. And once he had determined that, then he would slay it. He would kill it, and he would begin the process of sacrificing it. And even as he did this, as he opened, as he laid the animal open, he would start looking at its internal organs. You know what? He's still checking to see, is this animal upright? Is this animal without blemish? Now, the priest in that moment is doing what I, the giver of the ram, couldn't do. He's looking inside and checking. He's checking out inside. And once the priest had determined, okay, this thing's good to go, he said it was upright. Upright. It means without blemish, without fault, inside and out. Does that make y'all comfortable to hear that about going into the presence of God? I mean, I'll step out there. It doesn't make me comfortable. I, I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel confident at all that if I get into the presence of God, oh yeah, I'm clean inside and out. I'd be a little bit more concerned. I might land in the other category. Inside and out. Now, the passage uses an illustration here about what it looks like to be right with God. There's many things that it means to be right with God. The passage uses one. You see there in verse 4 where it talks about the vile person. And, and then it talks about honoring those who fear the Lord. That's kind of a poetic way of very simply saying this. We're loyal to God before we're loyal to sinners. We're loyal to God before we're loyal to evil. 
I think the average church person is going to hear that and say, well, duh. Is that even a point? Of course. And I am. Am I? Are you? I know I've done something, and I'm going to step out on a limb and say, so is everybody else in here. I've been in the presence of somebody that I knew needed the Lord. And I knew in this moment there was maybe an opportunity to share a little bit with them about Jesus and how they can have a relationship with Him. Or I could have just maybe shared the story of what Jesus has done in my life. But I didn't. And you know why I didn't? Because I was afraid they'd be offended. Or maybe I knew something, had seen something, and heard something, and I just knew it would create an uncomfortable situation. It it would create discomfort for them, and I I didn't want to do that. Folks, in that moment right there, what I just said is, I will be more loyal to this person and their feelings than I will be to God. I'll be more loyal to what this person thinks they want in the world than what God knows they need in eternity. See, I was just more loyal to the sinner than I was to God. I can say that with a lot of confidence up here because I know everyone in here has done that. Are we loyal to God above sinners? That's just an illustration. There's a variety of things. But folks, whether we're looking at one illustration or ten illustrations of what it looks like and means to be right with God, who cannot just read this casually and think, why, I, I'm, not, I'm not that. I haven't been that. I don't think I can go in there. I don't, I don't think it would be safe. What do I do? Second thing, second area, we need to control what comes out of this mouth and what's happening in our thoughts. This passage says we're to speak truth from our heart. And that line, David just does to us right there what the priest did to that ram. He lays us open. You see, he gets back not just the words that come out, but he gets to the source of where those words come from. And he looks at the intentions. He looks at the the motivation. He looks at the desire. He looks at our words. What this passage shows us here, folks, God not only hears the words that come out of my mouth, He hears the words that I mumble under my breath. God actually hears the words that never make it out of my mouth. Because we do a whole lot more conversing up here (laughs) than we do out here. God hears all that. You know, as I was studying the passage this week, you know, something dawned on me. It's not a big point. It's not a huge revelation. I just never had really thought about it like this. God speaks a lot about the sins of the tongue. I mean, Old and New Testament, all throughout every book, over and over and over, he's talking about lying and, and, and cursing and dirty jokes and and swearing. He's talking, about, uh, he's talking about backbiting. He's talking about words that, in, that embitter, words that anger, words that stir up, words that curse, words that belittle. Over and over and over, the Scripture is talking about what's coming out of our mouth. You know, as I thought about that, it, it, this dawned on me. You know, I don't, I don't confess sins of the tongue a lot. And it's not because I don't have any. It's because I don't think about them. I think in my mind I've kind of made those small and of no real consequence. You know, what best happens, folks, on, in a right and good time of prayer, I ask the Holy Spirit. Hey, Holy Spirit, what offended you about the way I acted and lived yesterday? 
And I let him guide me in what I need to confess. But you know what? I don't always do that. Sometimes I just sit down in my prayer and I just start kind of looking back over yesterday or the week. And I think, oh, you know, I shouldn't have done that. And I shouldn't have gone there. And I shouldn't have acted like that. I shouldn't have responded. That. And, I, and I just kind of on my own think through and then I confess my sin. But in doing that, I don't always evaluate what's been going on here. Why? Probably because in my mind, I've made it small and of no consequence. I wonder, should I be making small what God makes big? It seems to be a big deal to God. I mean, here David is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit telling you and I how we can safely approach the presence of God and what happens here makes the list. It's one of the illustrations. Hey, you want to go in there safely? Bud, you better start thinking about what's coming out of these lips. And not only what's coming out, but the source from which they come. That's a big deal to God. I mean, you almost hear God saying here, hey, guess what? My house is filled up with people who speak words of truth, who speak words of life, who speak words that build and encourage and help and fix. Check out Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word. That means not one. My gosh, I'm in trouble already. I don't even have to read the rest of the sentence. Let not one unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But only such a word as is good for edification. No word is to come out of our mouths that doesn't speak grace into the life of the one listening. Or speak grace into that situation. And if that is going to happen, then you and I have got to go back here in the back where those words are being formed. And we got to start thinking grace. we got to start praying grace. we we got to start looking at every person and situation that way so that not one word comes out that's not of grace. Gosh, folks, I don't have to evaluate this point very long before I say, huh, okay, point two, I'm toast again. I, I, I can't, I've messed up there. I, I, I don't know where the starting point is, but I know I've already messed up. I can't, I can't go in. What do I do? Third point, we need to be right with others. And kind of like being right with God, there's a lot that Scripture talks about, what it means, what it looks like, what we do, what we don't do to be right by others. Our passage here uses a couple of illustrations. It talks about commitments and, and bribery and, and money I like this one about commitment. Look, look there. I love this phrase. This is a good one to underline and, 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 and maybe memorize. The second part of verse 4. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That phrase means this. I keep my commitments even if it hurts. I keep my commitments even if it's uncomfortable. I keep my commitments no matter what it ends up costing me. Well, that's a huge statement, folks. You know, I think, and this is just pure opinion. You don't, you don't have to agree with me at all. I think that's what Ameri the character of America used to be. We, we used to be a people who, you know, the handshake was solid. It was better than ink. It, we were a people of our word. You could count on it. You could count on somebody's word. I really think that was a part of the moral fiber, the character of America. Folks, I don't believe that's true at all anymore. I don't think it's true even a, a, a little bit. As a matter of fact, we're the opposite of verse 4. I make all kind of commitments, but the moment that commitment makes me just a tad unhappy, the moment that a commitment doesn't fit into my schedule, the moment that commitment is uncomfortable, I'm out. 
I'm, you know what contracts are? Th- those are ways that, to make it difficult for you to get out of what you're saying that you're going to do. C- contracts don't bind us to anything in America anymore. We can get a lawyer to figure the way out. It's just going to be a tad uncomfortable. I mean, we don't keep commitments anywhere. We break commitments everywhere. You know, I mean, we kind of walk into the building. We assume God's here, right? We think God's walking in here. And we sign up for things and say, man, I'll be there. I'll be a part of that ministry. I'll help out with children. I'll do this. Folks, we have people sign up, don't show up the very next week. Sign up and never do it at all. I mean, if we don't honor our commitments in here where we think God's watching, what in the world are we doing out there where we hope He's not watching? All the commitments we make. Remember the, one of those first big commitments we make? I do. I do too. Yeah, we make big, giant commitments like that. You know what? We're making a commitment when we put the credit card down, aren't we? When we, when we, hand, that, when we hand that credit card to the, to the person behind the register, we're making a commitment. Hey, I'm good for this. I'll pay this. This is a commitment between you and the store and, and between me and the credit card company. We make commitments to our kids. We make commitments at work. We make commitments at church. Why is this such a big deal to God? Because you and I can count on every word God says. There's not a single word he speaks that he doesn't follow through on. He is absolutely trustworthy. So guess what he decorates his home with? People you can count on. People who are trustworthy. People whose word is good. We see a second one here talking about bribery and, and interest. You know, basically what this is saying, folks, God's not against capitalism. He's, he's not saying it's wrong to sell something and make a profit or to have a loan that has a, an interest payment. This is talking about sticking it to somebody. Probably in our culture, we'd say this is price gouging. This is when somebody is stuck, somebody's in a bad way, and you're their only source of help, and you stick it to them. This is talking about approaching people in the mindset of, how do I get a buck up? How can I take advantage of this? God says, man, we don't do that. That's not how we treat each other. And again, that goes with a whole list of things we're to be and do for each other. But here again, as you come to the end of getting a general understanding of this third point, how can any of us in here say, man, I'm in trouble. I've missed some commitments. I've dropped some commitments. I've taken advantage of some people. What do I do? I can't go in. What in the world good is Psalm 15? What, David's going to tell me how to go in and enjoy the presence of the Lord, and then he gives me a list that I've broken frequently and often? what, What good is this? God, this isn't fair. Nobody can do this. Now, when we say, and I do think that's kind of our natural response, that's that's not fair. Well, what do we want God to do? Do we want God to lower the standard? Yeah, that's what I want. God, you should fill up your home with liars and, and, and dirty jokes and, and people who won't keep their word and, and, and people who complain and, and take advantage of each other. Yeah, that's what you... No, 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 that's not what God... Oh, wait a bit, but if I say no, then that leaves me out. What do we do here, folks? We can't go in, not safely. And don't we know that in our soul? Isn't that why the average person is scared to death of dying? Isn't that why the average person is scared of what happens when you get into the presence of God? Because we know it's not going to be safe. It's not going to be good. And we're at the end of the psalm. I don't have a... Where do we go here? And yet. And yet. I want to read a passage. This comes from from Hebrews. It's almost near the end of your, your New Testament, right before... 
couple books before Revelation. And Hebrews is, is the most Old Testament sounding uh, of the New Testament books. Hebrews, it, it takes words right out of Leviticus, right out of Deuteronomy. Where, where none of the other New Testament books do this, Hebrews talks about the Ark of the Covenant. It talks about the sacrifice and the lambs and the blood and the, and the veil that separated the Holy of Holies. Hebrews is very Old Testament sounding. And Hebrews knows, Hebrews understands our problem at getting into the presence of God. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it says this, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah, that I get. That I understand. But folks, that's not what the Psalms are inviting us into. That's not what God is inviting us into. And so God offers another way. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, confidence, not fear, not anxiety, not dread. No, no, we've got confidence to enter the holy places. What? I, I, I read the list. I've messed it up. I can't go into the Holy of Holies with confidence. No, no, no. You can. With confidence, enter the holy places. How? Five words. By the blood of Jesus. Jesus is how I'm going to get into that holy place and it be good and it be safe. By the new and living way. It's not the old way where you and I do our best, where we try to keep all these rules that we can't and that we don't, that we fall short of. No, it's a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. The curtain, that's a reference to that veil that blocked off the, the front part of the temple from the Holy of Holies. Folks, they weren't just afraid of touching the Ark of the Covenant. They were afraid of even seeing it. And so they put up a veil, but Jesus says, no, I got a way to work through that veil, and it's through my flesh. And since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near. Now think of what we just heard in Psalm 15. Let us draw near with a true heart. See, the writer here has got the same thing in mind that David had in mind. How can it be safe to go in there? How can I go in with what Psalm 15 talked about? A true heart and go in with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, Remember the source of those words? That's what's going on inside us. And our bodies washed with pure water, that's what's going on outside us. Man, folks, the whole package is being declared upright. The whole thing is being cleansed. This entire body, inside and out, is being declared without blemish. Not because of how good I kept the rules, but by the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Folks, there is a way for you and me to go in daily and in eternity and enjoy the wonderful, awesome, beautiful presence of God and all that comes with it, and that is by Jesus Christ. Now, you know what? Somebody could write here and say, why didn't you just start the sermon with that? Why did we have to go? If Psalm 15 doesn't work, why, why didn't you just take us straight to Hebrews chapter 10 and then let us enjoy that? Folks, folks, what do we call the gospel? It's good what? It's good news. You know, nothing makes good news good without understanding how bad the situation is. 
Psalm 15 is setting up for us the impossibility of you and I safely being able to enjoy the presence of God. You should understand and know Psalm 15. And then when you read Hebrews 10, you should say, and praise God. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Praise God there's a way for me in there. There should be no greater joy and excitement than Hebrews chapter 10. But I think that joy and excitement comes out of understanding Psalm 15. Now, so you say, okay, super, praise God, I understand good news. So we don't even need Psalm 15 anymore. Oh, no, 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 I didn't say that either. No, no, when I go into the presence of God, I'm clinging to the feet of Jesus Christ. When I go in there, I go in there. When I say, dear Lord, there's nothing that follows that depends on how obedient and how good and, and how wonderful I am. When I say, dear Lord, the next word that follows is holding on to the blood of Jesus Christ. That is my confidence in his presence. But you know what? As I go into his presence, I want to respect his presence, don't you? I want to celebrate his presence. You know, when I go to somebody's house, I want to respect who they are and how they decorate their home, how they live in their home. I want to respect that. Guess what Psalm 15 is giving me insight to? How God decorates his house. And when I walk in there, by the blood of Jesus, clinging to Jesus, I go in and I say, you know what? Jesus did it for me, and now I'm going to work at living out being upright with God. I'm going to work at living right with God. I'm going to work at living right with others. I'm going to work. Boy, it's hard work, isn't it? Come on, y'all say yes here. It's true. This right here is hard work, this mouth. But I'm going to work at that because I want to respect what God has done for me. Not pay it back. I can't do that. I want to respect what God has done for me. I want to celebrate what God has done for me. And the result is a life that's never shaken. Folks, the presence of God gives you and I a life that can withstand this world. The presence of God is a place that is good and bought for you. Amen. By the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Psalm 15. I thank you for showing me who you are, what you're like, and how you decorate your home. I thank you for the standard that is set. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that standard. If that was my home, there's not one bit of that standard that I would want changed. I don't want my home filled with lying and, and gossiping and, and, and dirty jokes. I don't want my home filled with people who don't keep their commitments to each other who take advantage of each other. God, I respect your standard. God, I just can't keep it. I want to and I try to, but I, I can't. Thank you for Hebrews chapter 10. Thank you for meeting the standard I couldn't meet. Thank you for not leaving me outside of your home and outside of my presence. That's what I've earned. That's what I deserve. That's where I belong. I thank you that your love reached out and made a way for me to come in. And Lord, I pray that every one of us in here, we would realize that we enter your presence every time by our faith in the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ isn't something we trust in one time to be saved and then never think about it again. Oh, God, I pray that every day we're holding on to your feet. Every day we're trusting in what your blood has accomplished. That we're realizing the joy of being able to pray comes from that blood. The joy of 
coming into your presence and leaving safely is because of your blood. Lord, I know in this room right now there are people who've never placed their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. As it stands right now, it's not safe for them to enter into your presence. If they were to enter eternity soon, it would be very unsafe for them to enter your presence. God, if that's them, would you tell them right now? Tell them they've, they're not good enough. It's, they're, they're not okay. They're not ready. And Lord, let them know that you tell them that out of love. You tell them that with the good news that you've provided a way. Lord, I pray that today would be the day they come into a relationship with you. Today would be the day they begin to understand and place all of their confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that nobody would leave this building today without the opportunity to safely enter your presence and enjoy all that is there. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen.